The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Some have suggested that you create a new international organization that has parallels to the International Atomic Energy Agency that would help conduct inspections, that would provide regulatory guidance, and so on. And as I dug into those references to the nuclear analogy, it struck me that there are really some quite important differences between nuclear weapons and, and national security AI, including the fact that it is very hard to count the weapons, right? In the nuclear space, it's it's a tangible, a nuclear weapon is a tangible thing, a warhead is a tangible thing. Much harder to count something like the use of an AI tool. Verification is really different. I think it is quite difficult to verify whether a state is engaged in the development and use of AI tools. And there's also no government monopoly on AI tools in the way that there is in the nuclear weapons space. I'm Alan Rosenstein, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 28, 2023. States are increasingly turning to artificial intelligence systems to enhance their national security decision-making. The real risks that states will deploy on lawful or unreliable national security AI makes international regulation seem appealing. But what's the right model? Ashley Deeks is the class of 1948 professor of scholarly research and law at the University of Virginia. She's just published a paper for Lawfare's ongoing digital social contract research paper series, in which she argues that instead of looking to nuclear arms control as the model for national security AI regulation, states should look to how cyber operations are dealt with. I spoke with Ashley about her research and what a successful regulatory regime for national security AI would look like. It's a Lawfare podcast, March 23rd. Ashley Deeks on international regulation of national security AI. So Ashley, I'd love to start by you giving an overview of how AI is currently being used in national security and what you expect its future use will be, let's say in the short to medium term. Sure. Well, it's a good question because much of what states are doing at this point is a pretty deep secret. And uh, they've been pretty reticent to say much about how they are building AI into their existing tools. That said, I think we know that militaries and intelligence services, for sure, are interested in ramping up their use of AI. So in the paper, I talk about what I call national security AI. And there I'm trying to use a term that's a little bit broader than just the lethal autonomous weapons systems, which are a category of, of NSAI that is has been a, the source of a lot of discussion. So I think in general, what's 
happening is that militaries like like the public and like corporate actors are have appreciated that national security tools that incorporate AI are going to be better able to help the government actors make predictions, make recommendations about how to act, and in some cases may make decisions for the the government officials. But the kinds of things I have in mind are algorithms, for example, that will help militaries predict when somebody poses an imminent threat to their forces, or militaries that are using tools that are AI-enabled, like facial recognition software, to say, hey, that particular person we think is a named individual who we have been trying to detain, and so detaining them. Or assessing whether a particular foreigner who we've been tracking inside the United States is in fact likely a spy. Maybe the militaries will use these tools to help detect whether a given building that they're seeing via satellite imagery houses missiles. And of course, deep fakes, I think, are going to be a part of the national security setting, whether they are being used offensively or are trying to be detected defensively. And finally, I think we're also talking about cyber autonomy. So tools that uh, militaries, governments are going to be using to try to find each other's vulnerabilities in different cyber systems and then attack those vulnerabilities as well. And when you say AI tools in particular, what do you mean by that, right? And, you know, there's this joke among computer researchers that anything computers can't do yet is called AI and anything they can already do is called machine learning. Uh, and so, you know, this, this boundary of what is and is not AI is tricky. And, and especially I'm thinking as AI becomes baked into more and more products, right? I mean, at the point where Google and Bing and all the search engines are all using ChatGPT behind the hood, you know, can we say that anything is not an AI tool or conversely, everything is an AI tool? So what does it mean for you for uh, a national security tool to be an AI tool in particular? So the way I think about it is tools that are deploying machine learning systems, including in particular deep neural nets or convolutional neural networks, where it is very difficult for the the builders, the users, the subjects to understand what factors the system has relied on to make its prediction. I do think you're right that our definition of what falls inside and outside the AI bucket can be changeable and and maybe is changing already as we have ChatGPT uh, 4 on our desktops. But uh, I think the, the characteristic that I'm focused on is the idea that it is very difficult for those affected by the systems or using the systems to actually ascertain what weights were given to um, particular factors or elements so that it is hard to understand precisely how the system got to the prediction or recommendation that it did. So, so this actually nicely leads to another question I had, which is about this really arresting image that you begin the paper with, and that I know is part of a kind of larger project that this paper is, is part of, which you should feel free to talk about if you'd like. And that's the idea that national security AI is a kind of double black box. So can you just unpack that? You know, in what ways is it a black box and why are there two of them? <laughs> sure. So, uh, so you're right. There's a broader project that I've been working on in which I'm interested in how democracies like ours and many of our NATO allies, um, 
are trying to, or are going to have to navigate what I've termed this double black box. So where I start is this challenge that we all have that a lot of our national security activity happens inside a black box. Why? Because to be effective, our militaries, our intelligence services have to do things secretly. They have to be pretty secret about what tools they're using and how they're using them, where they're using them. And so I think it's long been appreciated that in, in a democracy, we're used to checks and balances. It is hard for Congress and our courts to bring to bear much oversight over the executive branch's national security activities. I do think there are some other actors who can help us out with this problem a little bit, including sometimes foreign allies, in some cases, corporations. But in general, we tend to find ourselves in this black box of national security. And so what I'm interested in is what happens when we introduce the black box of AI, which is what we just talked about, the, these tools that are quite opaque, when we add those into our existing national security black box. So I, in the larger project, am largely focused on domestic pathologies, domestic uh, institutional design challenges, and then domestic tools we might have to try to unpack a little bit the, the double black box. But of course, there have been discussions on the international level as well about the, at least the AI black box as it applies to one particular set of military tools. And so I wanted to think a little bit about whether and to what extent international law, international negotiations might offer some potential remedy uh, or amelioration of the domestic double black box. So let's turn to that amelioration. And let me start before we get into the mechanisms under which or through which national security AI could be regulated. Let's talk about why states might want, in fact, to regulate this or to come to some sort of agreement. Because of course, there are domains, right? And I think here of kind of traditional espionage, perhaps is the best example, where there's not actually a lot of attempts by states to come to some agreements. States just spy on each other and they try not to get caught and they try to defeat the other guy's spies and you know, it just kind of works itself out. So why do you think that there is kind of on the demand side, before we get to the supply side of how to regulate, why do you think states would want, or, or maybe they don't want, but should want to regulate national security AI tools? Yeah, that's a great question. And you're right that espionage has this funny status in international law <laughs> where people have not, states have not tried to regulate it, I think, because they they find it so useful but also, I think, because espionage rarely injures people, right? It can be harmful to a state to be the victim of espionage, but it's unusual for spying to actually lead to physical harm to individuals, including civilians, the regular population. I think the perception here is that various types of national security AI pose risks real physical risks to people. So one concern I think is that these tools, if not carefully used, can injure people and in particular injure the wrong people. Uh, maybe the systems are badly trained. Maybe the systems are badly constructed such that they can go haywire. 
I think there is a potential concern that certain kinds of these tools, think deep fakes here, could end up misleading states into thinking that they need to resort to force in the first instance. And I think the tools may also find themselves in the hands of non-state actors. That's not really true of espionage, right? Espionage is really generally thought of as a state-to-state thing. So I think the bottom line is that there are states perceive and non-governmental actors that are urging states to move in this space perceive real risks of physical harm that can result from improperly constructed or deployed national security AI. Do you have a sense of what kinds of states care more or less about regulating national security AI. And so just to kind of give an example of what I'm thinking about, right, you could imagine dividing the world into big states and small states, technologically advanced states and technologically kind of laggard states, you know, liberal democratic states and authoritarian states. And I could sort of imagine each of those groups having their own reasons to to want and not want national security AI to be deployed, right? So you imagine a country like the United States, which in some ways is the most technologically advanced um, and is leading in AI research, and maybe therefore the U.S. would want to be a little more aggressive about deploying these technologies. But at the same time, the U.S., uh, there's this great uh, phrase that's often used in cybersecurity circles where it's the, the U.S. has the biggest rocks, but the glassiest house, right? It has the most offensive capabilities, but kind of the biggest its own attack surface, um, in part because of how it's constructed and in part because of it's a liberal democracy. So like deep fakes matter much more in the U.S. than like, I don't know, maybe they would in North Korea. Um, so that's kind of a cross-cutting pressure. So I'm just sort of curious if you have a sense of kind of what states would want, what outcomes in any sort of international national security AI regime? Yeah, it's interesting. So I guess I would say there are three buckets of states. The first bucket is sort of the cleanest and neatest, and that is states that don't have robust militaries, don't have a lot of high tech in their societies, and don't envision that they are going to be certainly the producers and probably not the victims of problematic national security AI. And these states are generally in favor of a ban on this technology. So think Costa Rica, for example. There are, of course, many states in this category, but Costa Rica is maybe just a good rule of thumb because they don't really have a military, so to speak of. Then I'd say the second bucket is the United States and its many of its allies, uh, including in NATO. And so these are states that view the prospects of national security AI as potentially protective of people during armed conflict, as uh, they feel bound by the laws of armed conflict. They would not deploy these systems unless they were confident that they could comply with the basic principles of distinction in the laws of war or proportionality. So they see their advantages to them. They don't want them banned but they do think it's important to be careful and thoughtful about their development, their use, their retesting, et cetera. And then I think there's the third bucket of states, which are high-tech states, China in particular, Russia, that are not willing to give these up, but it may be for less salutary reasons. So it could be that Russia and China may not want to give up 
the battlefield advantage that they see in some NSAI, even if they're not sure it can comply with the laws of war. It could be that they wouldn't want to take any targets off the table against which NSAI could be deployed. So think election infrastructure or hospitals, things that the second group of states wouldn't target, but this third group might, Iran as well, I'd put in this group. And even something like deep fakes, where states like Russia and China control the press, control public reactions, and so might be less susceptible to being Uh, have their societies become agitated by deep fakes used against them than a liberal democracy that doesn't control its its press would. So I think there is a misalignment of regulatory interests among these three groups and uh, happy to talk more about how that has cashed out in the AI and to some extent the cyber conversations as well. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. 
Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So let's switch to that conversation and talk about how, to the extent that we want to regulate uh, NSAI, how to do it. You know, before we get into sort of what your proposed model is, let's talk about the model that you're pushing back against, which is thinking about national security AI along the lines that we think of nuclear weapons. And so if you could just describe how we regulate nuclear weapons and then you know, why a lot of folks seem really excited about that model uh, as a model for regulating AI, and then we'll talk about sort of why that doesn't work in your view. So there are lots of international treaties that regulate nuclear weapons. Uh, some of them are bilateral, largely between the, the US and the USSR. A number of important ones are multilateral, like the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, which includes both nuclear weapon states and non-nuclear weapon states. And I think that those treaties started to be negotiated in the, in the 60s after the Cuban Missile Crisis and continued on through the 70s and 80s. The bilateral agreements between the US and Russia uh, have basically run out and not been renewed or uh, one or the other of us has, has pulled out. But they're based on the fact that there is, a, I think, a clear agreement about what's being regulated. There is a a sharp understanding of what the threats posed by proliferation of nuclear weapons and so on are. And so they've led states to develop these systems that include some verification regimes as well. What was interesting to me in thinking about these calls to regulate AI was the number of uh, scholars and policymakers, think tank, think tankers who turn to nuclear, uh, the nuclear international regime as a, a good analogy for how to regulate AI. 
So I found a lot of proposals that were really quite ambitious that I think were not really tethered to the the deep fissures and the specific characteristics of AI tools. People were referencing the nuclear regime, I think, for two reasons. One was kind of an inspirational reference, the idea being, look, we all know that nuclear weapons are incredibly powerful, and there have been lots of times in history where the US and the USSR or Russia have been opposed to each other, and yet they've still been able to come together and negotiate these very specific treaties regulating nuclear weapons. Inspirationally, therefore, we should have some confidence that states can come together and regulate AI, national security AI or military AI. They've done it before. They can do it now. Another thing that happened was actually turning to the nuclear regime to think about structures that you could bring into the uh, national security AI space. So uh, some have suggested that you create a new international organization that has parallels to the International Atomic Energy Agency that would help conduct inspections, that would provide regulatory guidance, and so on. And as I dug into those references to the nuclear analogy, it struck me that there were really some quite important differences between nuclear weapons and and national security AI, including the fact that it is very hard to count the weapons, right? In the nuclear space, it's it's a tangible, a nuclear weapon is a tangible thing, a warhead is a tangible thing, much harder to count something like the use of an AI tool. Verification is really different. I think it is quite difficult to verify whether a state is engaged in the development and use of AI tools. We opened this conversation with this, uh, with this problem. And there's also no government monopoly on AI tools in the way that there is in the nuclear weapons space. So that that led me to want to push back a little bit on attempts to analogize between the two regimes. Before we move off the kind of nuclear disanalogy, another point that you bring up, and I do want to spend a little bit of time on it, is what you characterize as the sort of speculative nature of the AI threat. You know, relative to sort of the visceral nature of the nuclear threat. And I was hoping you could talk about that and and also whether you think that actually might be changing. Like whether whether maybe finally and you know, obviously GPT four is not exactly the same as a nuclear weapon, but it does seem like in the last just few months, people, policymakers seem to be getting much more freaked out by AI in a way that I actually wonder might um might drive a little bit more desire for coordination among among nations. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Uh, when I first uh, started writing this, I was struck by the idea that there isn't really, there hasn't been a mushroom cloud equivalent in the AI space. And I think that's, you know, in large part because states are at this point keeping their powder dry about what systems they've developed internally. I think it is, a, again, a quite a deep secret about what tools they are hoping to develop and what tools they have already started to develop. So unlike a nuclear explosion where there has there have been some and we know what those look like, we haven't really seen in at least in the real world examples where AI has has kind of run amok other than of course something like the Terminator movies, but those are not real world. But I think your point is a good one and the past month, I think, has brought to the attention of 
lawmakers, brought to the attention of policymakers, how quickly these systems can go off the rails and how easy it is to use them in ways that their creators did not intend and use them for ill. So you might be right that the 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 delta between the way we tend to think about nuclear weapons and the way that we've we've been thinking about uh, national security AI that 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 delta may be getting smaller as a result of these really high profile very widespread AI driven tools. I, I just think of the um, the fascinating piece uh, that Kevin Roos, the New York Times columnist, wrote about his very uh, creepy exchange with ChatGPT, which apparently declared his love for him and tried to break up his marriage and all of that. And, and that was creepy enough. And, and then you translate that into the uh, the uh, national security space. And it doesn't take a lot of imagination to to come up with some, you know, Terminator Skynet adjacent scenarios. Totally true. You are not happily married, says the <laughs> chat GPT. You may think you are, but you're not. Or, or more importantly, you are you are not allies. You, we were always at war with, uh, <laughs> with East Asia. <laughs> exactly. From, from 1984. Um, okay. So, so we talked about the nuclear weapons disanalogy. Let's talk about the better analogy, and that's around attempts to regulate uh, hostile cyber operations. So before we get into the mechanisms and how that actually has, has worked, can you just sort of describe why you think that the problem of hostile cyber operations is analogous in important ways to national security AI in a way that nuclear weapons is, is not analogous? So as I was concerned about the nuclear analogies, I started to think about whether there were other tools, techniques, or systems out there that had more equivalent features to AI. And uh, and it did strike me, as you say, that hostile cyber operations offer, in my view, a much better parallel. So why are they similar? I think for at least four reasons. The first is that both have a, a very broad range of users. Lots of different states are going to have an interest in or access to these tools at different levels of sophistication, but will have access to them in a way that many fewer states have access to nuclear weapons. And among the users are not just states, but lots of private actors, lots of non-state actors as well. So that means, of course, that if you are trying to regulate these on an international plane, you have to have a larger group of people in the room, larger group group of states in the room. And that includes states like Russia, China, the DPRK, Israel, the US, the UK. So that is a, a messy sort of convoluted group of states that have to be talking to each other on these issues. A second reason why I think cyber and national security AI have some features in common is their dual use nature. Uh, which means that whenever you are trying to regulate one aspect of it, um, let's say a military aspect of it, you need to think about whether what you are regulating is going to have uh, an adverse effect on good things that you like these systems to do. That is generally not true for nuclear weapons. A third category is this misalignment of regulatory interests between the US, its NATO allies on the one hand, and states like Russia, China, and Iran on the other. We've already talked about this a little bit in terms of whether 
states are equally willing to give up certain opportunities on the battlefield, whether states are willing to take certain targets of cyber or AI off the table, and so on. And the fourth bucket is the verification challenges. I think just as it is challenging to verify whether a particular tool has AI in it or was in an autonomous mode when it did something, I think it's also difficult to verify whether states do or don't have certain types of hostile cyber operations tools in their in their arsenal. It's much more complicated to to verify in that setting than it is in the nuclear setting. And, and so how how have these hostile cyber operations been regulated? And you know, in your paper, you actually, and this is one of the most valuable parts of your paper, is you have like a really in-depth taxonomy of the many different kinds of instruments. Um, and so you don't, I'm, you know, you don't have to go through all of them right now. But sort of, what to you are sort of have been the most effective instruments, let let us say, for for regulating uh, cyber ops? Yeah, well, there haven't actually really been any legally binding rules that have been established in the cyber setting. And that's one of the points that I try to draw out in my paper in thinking about where AI is likely to go. I do think it's it's correct that states have reached some agreement in the cyberspace that certain rules of existing international law apply to cyber operations. The UN Charter, international humanitarian law, not a hundred percent buy-in from all states on that, but I think that's there's sort of rough consensus on that. And, and this is the stuff that, for example, is in the Tallinn Manual and this kind of emerging body of of law. So I'm getting that. this from the conversations that um, happened in the group of government experts in the in the UN. There have been some efforts in in that body and a little bit outside it as well, to de- try to develop a few new norms, but they're teed up as as non-binding norms, and they are largely done at a pretty high level of generality. As you get uh, to smaller and smaller groups, I think you get more and more specific norms, but of course they will not bind anyone other than those sitting at the table nodding their heads. Uh, and even then they may be non-binding. They may be more specific, but they may still not be binding. So I think NATO has done some work in this space. I suspect that Five Eyes partners of the United States, that is the UK, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, have had more in-depth discussions about uh, what cyber tools are and aren't appropriate. We've seen a couple of very narrow bilateral agreements in particular, and somewhat notoriously, the US and China agreed to take certain kinds of economic cyber espionage off the table in a memorandum of understanding. I think experts assess that that was, had a little bit of an effect, but was not a kind of long-term game changer. And we've seen a lot of unilateral activity in the cyber setting. We've seen a bunch of states announce their views on how international law does apply to different cyber uh, scenarios We've seen states come out and accuse each other of bad behavior in cyber without necessarily saying that that bad behavior constitutes an international law violation. And the U.S. has indicted uh, and tried to prosecute a number of state actors for particularly harmful cyber operations. And then finally, that we've seen some non-state processes. You referred to the Tallinn Manual. That is a really good example, a very in-depth 
uh, attempt to capture the views of of people who had government experience but were not in government at the time of what how international law applies to cyber. And more recently, we've seen the Oxford process. You also, we've seen a couple of company codes of conduct. Uh, Microsoft has been interested in pursuing kind of rules of the road on cyber and so on. And of those mechanisms, which ones are you most optimistic about applying or you know, being able to be applied and that there's a likelihood of applying to national security AI? In other words, is there sort of a particular tool that you think is actually sort of, we might realistically actually get some progress on in the near future? So I actually think there's a quite a nice parallel between each of those tools and the way that they are cashing out in the AI space or are likely to cash out in the AI space. So especially on the on the first one sort of applying existing international law to the challenge the states parties at the convention on certain conventional weapons have generally reiterated that the laws of armed conflict would apply to uh, the use of lethal autonomous weapon systems on the battlefield. They, as in cyber, have tried to develop some non-binding norms uh, that are at a pretty high level of generality because the CCW works by consensus. We're seeing a little bit of minilateral action within NATO, where NATO is trying to establish principles that they would all agree on. And then I think they're trying to push to go a little bit deeper to where the hard work begins, moving beyond saying just, yes, of course, AI should be responsible and, and transparent and accountable to, to really trying to make the rubber hit the road there. So I think there will be some, some good work done in the NATO setting. I don't think we've seen any bilateral agreements yet, but I, you could imagine that there could be very narrow bilateral agreements among, for example, the US and Russia even now, on keeping, for example, AI out of our nuclear command and control systems. There have been a number of people who have proposed that. And then we're seeing a lot of unilateral acts, at least among states like the United States, to a lesser extent the UK. The US has done quite a bit in articulating how it itself will develop autonomous systems, how it will implement the it's called an implementation pathway, basically how DOD will adopt these systems internally. And interestingly, in February, it just put forward at a, a multilateral meeting a proposed political declaration that takes a deeper dive on some of the proposed standards that it thinks states should comply with when they're developing military AI. They're reportedly seeking some international consensus around these principles, but it's not clear to me that at that meeting you had other states uh, signing on to it yet. And I do think we'll still we'll see efforts from outside states, I mean, from, from actors who are outside uh, state institutions. So the International Committee of the Red Cross is always a player in this space. They've made some proposals about how states should proceed and at this Dutch event where the U.S. rolled out its proposed political declaration, they used a really multi-stakeholder approach where at least the first day they had states, companies, ethicists, civil society with an emphasis on transparency. In day two, the states retreated behind the curtain and had their own internal conversations. 
So Ashley, just one last question for you. You know, you've given us a lot of really interesting kind of analogies to think about and, and different frameworks and, and, and possibilities for how regulation and agreement might occur. What do you ultimately think, though, is the, is the probability that this will happen anytime soon? And, and in particular, what would it take for there to be a real sustained push for countries to get together and regulate these technologies? Yeah, the current state of geopolitics today and the nature of the AI tools that we've just talked about leave me pretty pessimistic in the short to medium term that we're going to see a lot of real meaty agreement about how to use these these military and intelligence AI tools. But I do think that it's possible that there could be some shock to the system that causes states to appreciate the urgency of coming together and discussing and negotiating uh, and committing to even a narrow set of rules that take certain certain possibilities off the table for them. It took states almost 20 years to adopt binding international law on nuclear weapons after the first nuclear weapon was used, but they did it in the months following the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I think that both in the cyber setting and in the national security AI setting, it is possible to imagine a shock that we can't necessarily anticipate today that will that will jolt states into action. Well, hopefully we won't have to wait for the AI equivalent of a mushroom cloud. But uh, if we do, we'll definitely have you back on to t- talk us all talk us all through it. Um, thanks for coming on. And thanks for writing the terrific paper, everything we've talked about in, in uh, this episode. We just scratched the surface of what is a really rich and detailed and analytically such a useful piece of scholarship. Uh, so thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osmond of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.